feature of our program, the appearance of our mystery challenger. The panel is always blindfolded for this part of the program. Blindfolds on in place, panel? Yes, firmly. Good. Will you enter mystery challenger and sign in, please? All right. Are you an American? Ardently, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Mr. Um, Sir? Uh, Do you ever deliver diatribes on political occurrences? When the situation presents itself. Would you be more Saul by any yes, chance? He would be Saul. <laughs> and that's what we have tonight. Mort Saul. Yeah, Mort. Mort. <laughs> All right. I thought it was a good way to enter. Um, Mort Saul, the more I'm discovering about him, didn't know much. I heard the name before, but you were like, go find this, go find that. And I dig and dig and dig. And he did a lot in his 94 years. Ha! Huh? I wish I could do half of that. <laughs> Dear Lord, what a life. All right. So tell us about our um, featured person, Mort Saul. Well, I mean, Mortsall was born in 1927 up in Montreal, although his family comes from the Lower East Side in New York. They're Jews. Um, they eventually, or not eventually, they moved to L.A. where he's raised in Hollywood um, and Los Angeles and um, begins to hang out with people who, like him, want to get into show business as writers. Um, at the age of 15, he runs away from home, lies about his age and joins the army eric so it's very similar to your story um yeah he registered for the draft from what i understand he i, I heard an interview with him he said that um, i've heard both i've heard both yeah yeah he, but, he claimed that he registered for the draft because he knew that he couldn't enlist that if he tried to enlist that they wouldn't take him because they'd be like hey get out of here kid but by registering for the draft they would think he was trying to duck it and then they would make him go in Right. Well, his mother comes and gets him within a few weeks and brings him back. And then two years later, at the age of 17, he officially joins the Air Force and gets sent up to uh, Alaska, where he works on the base newspaper, I guess. You know, it's probably their version of Stars and Stripes, whatever the Air Force had up there at that time at the, I guess, the Bering Strait. That's I don't know. Is that him in the in the service or not from a movie? Well, I think it's him in a movie. <laughs> yeah, but it's gonna fill in for right. his time in the service. So, right. folks, this is him with his uh, fine attitude. Well, here he looks like movie. he's thirty eight years old. I don't know if he's <laughs> seventeen here, but nice try, Eric. Really nice try. He's in uniform. What do you want? Tip of the hat. He's fighting Nazis here, but he's he's working against the Russians. Uh, he was a precocious child. You know, you know, it's so funny because during the McCarthy <laughs> era, he said, um, very funny about, about McCarthy, he said, uh, every time the, the Russian Soviets put someone in jail, we do too. Yes, <laughs> that is, show him a lesson. It's a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> oh, for but sure. Yeah, so he's up in Alaska. He comes back on the GI Bill, uh, I guess it's like 1947, um, and goes to USC. Um, where he graduates with a degree 
in traffic engineering. I don't really know what that is. It's some division of urban planning, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. But his father um, works for the FBI, not as an agent, more like a desk guy, and is a failed um, playwright, from what I understand. Yeah, that's right. He was talking about that, too, that um, his father married or got his mother by putting an ad in Poetry Magazine, quite literally, mm -hmm. saying, is there still a woman out there who would like to meet a dreamer? She wow. came to L.A. and they were married in 72 hours. Wow. Wow. That's really impressive. He marries a girl who's 16 who he meets on the beach in Malibu. <laughs> and he's like 26. And, uh, I, you know, who knows what happened there. But he, the marriage lasts three years. She goes to Berkeley, enrolls in college, and he goes on the road as a comic, doesn't really see her ever. You know, because every time he comes back, she's studying for a test in psychology or something. So... Yeah, that's right. so here he's wearing um, an early version of his sweater motif, I guess. He, he This is a weird thing. Like, you had to wear a suit and tie to be in a comedy club or a jazz club or a nightclub. There was there was no comedy club. So, I mean, he he goes to a place called the Hungry Eye in San Francisco on North with Beach. A, with the I, the letter I. Literally. Yeah, letter I, which is short for intellectual, by the way. So, yeah, nobody really knows that. But anyway, so it's run by a guy named uh, Henry Balducci. And uh, he just gets like a uh, following of intellectuals or college kids, basically. And he goes up and talks. He doesn't really have an act. And he doesn't write one word down. He has no cue cards. He goes up, he goes up with a prop, which is the New York Times under his arm. And he doesn't look at the New York Times. He just uses it as a, as a prop. I later found out that folded up in the Times was just subject headings that he wanted to hit, you know, like the mm. war, this, that. I mean, no real words, just headings in case he got lost in his improvisation, which is all he did. I mean, he, he didn't just ad lib. The entire act was ad libbed. That, that's the insanity of Mort Saul. Besides everything else he's ever done in his life, the most amazing thing about Mort Saul was he never wrote a single word of an act uh, mm. down and he never wrote any jokes and he never created anything with pen on paper, except years later when he started to write scripts and books on his own and for Hollywood punching up scripts here. Um, but he's very act, topical too, right? So I mean, he was right, you know, right. very That's, oriented right. to the news. So he's kind of responding to what the current events, events were. Are, yeah, right? he, he doesn't feel first of all he says where am i going to rehearse it and second of all it would get stale and he would do the same subject for about two weeks he would stick mm. on it and then switch whatever he had he'd throw out the window after two weeks now yeah. if if it's hard to sustain that that's insane i mean guys today buy an entire act for a million dollars and then use it for a number of years until Okay, just to backtrack, the reason comics go on the road is if they stayed in the same spot, you'd be hearing the same act every night. Sure. Okay, so Mort uh, like went to the Crescendo here in L.A. and um, worked for 88 consecutive weeks, if you can imagine that. That means wow. people kept coming back for new material. He, mm. didn't do, he couldn't do the same act for 88 weeks. I mean, it's insane, but I don't even know how to explain it other than to say that's why he's a freak of nature. He's the first stand-up comic, the first comedy album ever made in the history of the United States is Mort Saul in 1957. 
um, which is called Live at Sunset, Sunset, uh, Sunset Beach, I think. And he's the first comic ever on the cover of Time magazine in 1960. He's the first comic ever to play a college. Yeah, here's the 1960 cover. Um, the album was recorded in like 55 and I think it was released in 1958 um, called At Sunset on, uh, it was on Fantasy Records. Anyway, he's all alone doing this. Nobody's doing this. This is the only guy, he's the only comic, he's the only stand-up comic. I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of Borscht Belt guys who do machine gun style comedy you know, the Henny Youngman guys, the punchline joke guys. Mm -hmm. But this, is, he's the first modern political satirist since Will Rogers or Mark. Even before Wayne. Lenny Bruce. He, he beat yes, Lenny Bruce he, by a minute. Just by a minute. Just by a minute. In fact, he talks about a story where Lenny Bruce is working across the street from the hungry eye at the Purple Onion. And <laughs> Lenny, Lenny Bruce gets arrested and busted for using obscenities. And at that time, um, they were sending undercover cops to listen to his act. So Lenny switched to Yiddish and started to say the bad words in Yiddish. So they brought in, <laughs> this is true. They brought in Sherman Block here in LA who was Jewish and he was the sheriff. He was the uh, uh, Villanueva uh, or Sheriff Baca of LA. And he would go to the crescendo because he spoke Yiddish and he then would arrest Lenny Bruce for saying cocksucker in Yiddish. <laughs> true story, true story. And they tape record him secretly and then play the tapes back for the judge. And he'd have to explain to the judge that this guy is saying motherfucker in Yiddish. If you get, <laughs> it's just crazy. But anyway, Lenny Bruce gets busted at the Purple Onion and he gets taken to jail and he calls up Mort Saul and he says, I need money for bail. He says, I want you to go across the street and do my sets. And Mort Saul says, I'm doing my own at the Hungry Eye. So Mort Saul's sets are only 12 minutes because he's opening up for uh, singers, nightclub singers. So after he's done, he runs across the street, does Lenny Bruce's set as himself, not as Lenny Bruce. Right, right, right. Comes back, does his second set, goes across the street, does Lenny Bruce's <laughs> second set, comes back across the street to do his third set. And as he's going back across the street, there is a bunch of doctors who are there for a convention. They're all drunk out of their minds. They got their name tags on and they stop him in the street and they go, son, son, you got to be aware of this. There's a kid in the other club who's doing your entire act. You got to stop him. <laughs> it's classic. <laughs> classic Mort Saul. Totally true story. I mean, that's that's the relationship they had is why I'm saying that the, he gets the money. He gets paid from the nightclub owner, goes to the jail, bails out Lenny and, and gets him out of jail. And this happened a number of times. But he said that Lenny Bruce drove this old station wagon Volvo uh, up from L.A. to San Francisco. And if the nightclub owner didn't pay him, he would take the tables and chairs from the nightclub and lock it up in the station wagon until he got paid by the nightclub owner. Uh, he'd, hold the he'd hold the furniture hostage, which I think is a great little. Well, that's kind of old school. <laughs> it definitely works. But um, from my understanding, too, Mort Saul and in other interviews, he did not really go for coarse language and things like that. He No, he was a he total was Boy Scout. He didn't drink. Clean. He didn't take drugs. He didn't smoke. He didn't curse. He really frowned upon people who did. And I mean, frowned upon him. He, he frowned yeah, he's talked him. some trash on some uh, Yeah, others. I mean, oh, boy, he it just drove him <laughs> insane that guys would do that. And um, even in his book, he quotes his second wife dropping an F-bomb in a quote, and he apologizes for an entire paragraph that he's <laughs> quoting his ex-wife saying, go fuck yourself. 
That's how. <laughs> I mean, this guy joined ROTC in high school, wore the uniform every day to school. The ROTC. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's a patriotic guy, but he's also, uh, you know, a Boy Scout type. Well, and that's why I um, did want to definitely capture that part when it's like, are you an American? And he's, you could just see, he's like, absolutely, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that becomes really important in his story over time. But here he's with uh, Ed Sullivan. So, and he was talking oh, yeah, about he, you know, Ed Sullivan didn't really like him. He kept saying that um, he should stop talking about politics. And he was kicked off the show. And he, <laughs> Fat Jackie Leonard showed up. And, and he said, what are you doing here? He says, I have no idea. Ed Sullivan called me to replace a guy that he can't stand. And that was Mort Saul in the, in the wings of the, of the stage. And the uh, the Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh, my God, that's funny. He did not like Mort Saul. Now, keep in mind, there's a lot of anti-Semitism back then also. And, and who knows what Sullivan's real motivation was. I mean, Saul was Jewish. Lenny was Jewish. They took a lot of heat for being Jewish, especially in the service. You know, Lenny Bruce talked about um, guys coming up to him saying, I understand you're Jewish. And he would say, yeah, and they get into a fight. I, I don't know what happened with Mort Saul, but he was a lot less Jewish than Lenny Bruce. Having mm. been born in Montreal, Canada, I guess Jews in Montreal, you know, look at a little differently in French Quebec than Roslyn, Long Island, which is where Lenny Bruce is from. And, you know, yeah, growing up in L.A. too. So, I mean, yeah. right. Now, it's not that there's not a lot of Jews here, but it's also uh, a different kind of Judaism. Very, very assimilated reform Judaism here as opposed to back east. You know, yeah. And he's commented about that before. Now, he also was in some movies. Um, this one is uh, Johnny Cool. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. Henry Silver, Johnny Cool. I don't know. It's a strange. I've never seen the movie, but yeah, that. uh um, he played a couple of guys. He, you know, it's so funny because I heard that Bill Paxton, they wanted to make a biography, a biopic of Mort Soul. And mm -hmm. when I, I, you know, he said that um, I heard that Bill Paxton wanted to play him. And he said to me, he said, I'd rather have Ben Stiller. So I'm looking at this picture. And I mean, look, at, he kind of looks like Ben Stiller. Yeah, I was gonna, uh, actually, I could see Ben Stiller playing him. Right, yeah. I know. I know. And I'm sure there was... There must have been a project kicking around for years. You know, it's, I doubt that there was it, no project. I find that hard to believe. It might fly now. I mean, you know, since he passed away last week, you never know. Maybe something. Oh, right, happen. right. Well, it's not going to get made. Well, no, maybe it could get made now. You're right. Yeah, I mean, not like he can argue about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, here's another one. It's All the Young Men. He was in this movie. And, yes, that's the same movie that I used the picture oh, right, from earlier. Okay. But right. I can cheat. I have right. that right. Yeah, he talked about making this movie, how they let him rewrite the ending and let him rewrite his parts. I think he drove them fucking insane, probably. You know, <laughs> you know, you hire a comic to be in a movie and, you know, he's a 600 pound gorilla. Obviously, he's the biggest comic in the country, you know, uh, so he had some muscle. I mean, keep in mind, uh, like he was making the equivalent of thirty thousand dollars a week. He was making over a million a year as a comic in nightclubs. There were no comedy clubs. When he went into a club like uh, Mr. Kelly's in Chicago or the Blue Angel, Max Gordon's place in New York or the Crescendo here in L.A., these were regular supper clubs. They weren't comedy clubs. There was no funny bones. There was no mm. chuckles. There was none of that crap. He, he would go into a nightclub and work for a week or six weeks or in the case of the Crescendo, 88 weeks, <laughs> you know, getting the equivalent of, of, of that, that kind of money. 
Well, because I mean, he was that, he would be replacing a band, right? I mean, he was essentially right, no, no, making no. what at, a whole band point, would right, make no, at no. the time. At, at that point, there was just him for thirty thousand dollars a week. No, I but mean, that's what I'm saying is they probably had the budget, and he yes, was pulling yes. it, and he was by himself. Yeah, you know, the same amount that a big band would pull yes. or something like that, just yes. by himself. And he they would charge the same amount of money for to see the Stan Kenton Orchestra, uh, or Peggy Lee or somebody of that ilk. But he starts by opening up for Peggy Lee and these singers and stuff. That's why his whole act was twelve minutes. So later on, his act was two hours, and this guy came up to him and says, um, he says, you used to have a very tight act at 12 minutes. Why are you going on for two hours? And he says there was less political trouble back in those days. <laughs> it's another great line. Well, and that leads in, okay, to, I'd say the next part, so we've established how giant he was, but then he was right. Well, let me just add on two, two more giant things. He okay. hosts the Oscars in 1960, and he hosts mm -hmm. the first Grammys in 1959. The, the Grammys are created, and he is the first host of the Grammys. Oh, wow. Of, in the know. history of the United States. And also, 1960, he's a host of the Oscars with Bob Hope and a couple other guys uh, hosting the Oscars. Like They had multiple hosts back then, I guess. Wow, that is... Totally insane. Right. But he's also the influence for all these guys like Woody Allen and, you know, uh, New Heart and New, New, New Heart and, and Shelly Berman. He brings in this whole new crew of comedians who kind of act like him, Nichols and May and, and, and Shelly Berman and that whole group, Bob Newhart. Right. And down the line, too, to like the Seinfelds and stuff, I'd say, because and of observational humor and. Right. And Robin Williams and Bill Maher and, you know, the political stuff of Bill Maher. There could be no Bill Maher without Mort Sol. I mean, there, there, there were no political comics. I mean, it didn't exist. It didn't exist. He created this out of whole cloth. I mean, Lenny wasn't really a political comic. Lenny didn't get into his Robin with him. Yeah, that's um, up in Mill Valley where um, he passed away this particular week, which is why we're doing the show. And that's backstage at the Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley, where both of them live nearby. So uh, I think in 2004, 2005, um, uh, he moved back up to he moved back up to Mill Valley, um, Mortsall and Robbins from there. So they kind of became friends up there. But e even up until 2020, even up till COVID, uh, Mort Saul was performing at the Throckmorton Theater every Saturday night. It just is amazing. A one-man show. Maybe that's why he's you know lives so long. I mean, ninety-four I know, is not bad. I may have to do this podcast till I'm ninety-four. Good. Just I demand it. <laughs> I demand it. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, it'd be the same one and not torn I mean, down. You, point, you pointed out that Lenny Bruce missed fifty-six years of Mort's life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Lenny I, Bruce died at I think forty or forty-two, somewhere in there. Well, he had the good sense to die at that age instead of lingering on to be blacklisted <laughs> and, and tortured by the media. I mean, he had the common sense to get out in nineteen sixty-six. Well, know, there it, you go. And then, and then Mortsall went on to live another fifty years. Another fifty-six years. So he, he lived on what two and a quarter Lennies, and probably three <laughs> war three wars that Lenny missed. You know. Wow. Oh God. Yeah, no, no, that's astounding. So now, you, okay, what really, really intrigued me is I, I had no, um, you know, a real idea about the guy. And you were telling me that he wrote jokes for Jack Kennedy. Oh, right. Okay. So he, he, he not jokes, like what's called, I've done this myself. It's called stage okay. patter. It's not like joke. They are jokey, but it's stage patter. Okay. Um, Lines, I guess, would be a 
Sure. Yeah, it's lines, it's commentaries, throwaway things like that. It's stage patter. It's a thing. So uh, anyway, so he he gets hired by Joseph Kennedy, the dad, to write stage patter jokes. You know, during the campaign, nineteen sixty, and JFK wins, and Joseph Kennedy comes to him and says, "I'd like to work out an arrangement with you to write jokes for my son now that he's the president of the United States." And and Mort Saul is appalled, and he says, "Sir, I am now the loyal opposition." And that's where the phrase loyal opposition came from, related, oh, really? to, related to Mort Sol. He told this to Joseph Kennedy, and Joseph Kennedy flips out, and he says, I'll destroy you if it's the last thing I do. By the way, on that note, the loyal opposition, mm -hmm. I saw earlier in the chat, somebody had checked in during the day, there's a YouTube channel right. called Loyal Opposition. Yes. And I think the the person may know Mort Saul. He offered his material in the chat. I was like, well, damn, I wish I knew that. Because I he wish had I knew that. I've been watching that channel. I subscribed to it. Okay, well, yeah, he, uh, he offered it. Yeah, it's really new stuff too. It's like right. really late in life, more salsa. Right. And the if, stuff on if it. If you're watching it? now, um, loyal, thank you so much, everybody. Check out thank that you. channel; it's thank very you. cool. And one of the uh, jokes, uh, more apparent, or one of the quips he wrote, lines, whatever, I guess was dealing with the uh, Catholic problem with Kennedy. And the line was, it's not the hereafter that's bothering me, but November 4th is driving me out of my mind. <laughs> that's a good line. That's a good one. Yeah, but, so he, he mentioned that because there were the problems with, you know, is Kennedy going to report to the people or the Pope? Right. So he begins to write jokes against, jokes against the Kennedy administration and against the liberals and just switches sides. And unlike, unlike Stephen Colbert, Kimmel, and, and, and Marr, yeah, they're loyal. <laughs> yeah, they're real loyal and not the opposition. He realizes and, and, and embraces what a political satirist is, and that's to make jokes of the king. And he's appalled by the request by, by Joseph Kennedy. Kennedy doesn't understand this, of course. And Mort Sol says, I, I wouldn't do that in a million years. Even, you know, if Nixon won, I would attack him, which he does. Mm. And he's friends with Nixon when he's out of office. You know, I mean, he doesn't really care about the two-party system. He's obviously a progressive-minded guy in terms of politics, but he goes right after liberals as soon as they get into power and starts making jokes about them. And he says, you know, uh, political group, you know, politician guys used to visit me backstage, and he said when the Democrats came into power, they visit me by committee inside the <laughs> dressing room after a show <laughs> and hassle me about making jokes about Kennedy. And he never buckles, you know, he makes the jokes, but also Joseph Kennedy never buckles too and, and seeks to destroy Mort's uh, career. Yeah, he was also, um, uh, later on, he was really close friends with Alexander Haig, General Haig. That's, that's later down the road. We'll get to that. But okay. I, that's, that, yeah. that's really in the 2000s almost, you know, after the, or the Bush administration. After sure. the Bush administration. I think Haig, uh, at one point, if you remember, ran for president with yes. a bunch of other candidates in my and correct? Saul endorsed him and donated. Right, right, right. I mean, he, he didn't look at him as he was like he was General Curtis LeMay, who he said during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was very close to Jack Kennedy. This was not just a guy who made jokes. They had dinner together. They hung out together. I mean, he, right. when when Kennedy was killed, he was devastated. This was a close friend. That's right. now that led to and that led to a, a dark period in his life, right? Well, that leads to, um, first of all, it leads to 1964, where he goes from making a million dollars a year to $13,000 a year, literally overnight, because he goes on stage 
with the volumes of the Warren Commission and begins to read them to a live audience. And I don't mean just reading them. He makes jokes. He doesn't read them out loud. Lenny, Lenny was reading the transcript of his own trials. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, the parallels are enormous. They both get mm -hmm. blacklisted. They, they both end up with, with all kinds of court problems. Uh, him not legally, but, you know, getting blacklisted. So, but Lenny would read the transcript of his own court cases and people said that's where Lenny was not funny anymore. They did the same thing with Mort Saul, and they said he was not funny anymore. Both of those are lies. Both of those are complete lies by the state. They both mm -hmm. didn't want them to do what they were doing. Lenny Bruce was very, very funny when he was reading his court transcripts. It was absolutely hysterical. And Mort Saul said, for instance, he says he's talking about Ruby assassinating Oswald in the, in the, in the police station. He says, here comes Oswald with 71 members of the Dallas police force as bodyguards, 72 if you count Jack Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, that's the type of stuff he was doing with the Warren Commission, but it went to the deep state and it, he had to be destroyed. He couldn't be allowed to do this. So all of his bookings start drying up. All of his comedy club things disappear in 1964. Uh, he's essentially blacklisted from every nightclub in the country. Uh, and he literally goes from making a million dollars a year to $13,000 a year in 1964, which is an amazing plummet, if you can imagine. Which is stag what, what I find staggering, though, is what he did next. Right. And that was. Well, this again, guy. this is the same thing I was trying to tell you about Abby Hoffman, which we'll do in a later episode. Mm -hmm. Abby on the road on the run from the FBI, but refuses to buckle and doesn't hide and takes on the Army Corps of Engineers up in the St. Lawrence River, creating a new persona. He does the same thing. These guys never die. They never they never give up. All these guys. That's one of the things about these guys. That's it, uh, unbelievable. He in 1967 goes to New Orleans. Oh, let me just back up for a second. He lives in Malibu and he's doing a live remote talk show on ABC local uh, here in L.A. where he does the news humorously as Mort Saul for ABC uh, News. It's mm -hmm. a, a, a show that the, he has, a half hour show, where he's literally on his porch with the ocean in back of him commenting on the day's events. You know, <laughs> and it's a great job. It's a fantastic job. He has some guests. You see the, the, the water in the back. He has a million dollar beach home in Malibu that he's holding on to for dear life. But he's got employment through ABC. So mm. ABC sends him to find out what Garrison is, is doing in New Orleans in 1967. And this is Jim Garrison, uh, the district attorney in New Orleans, um, who stumbles onto Oswald being part of a group of people in New Orleans who formed a cabal uh, to assassinate the president. Here's Kevin Costner in the movie JFK playing Jim Garrison. The book was based on his, um, his book on the trail of the assassins and um, a book by Fletcher Prouty. Uh, two books. Um, so he goes down there to, according to ABC News, to discredit Jim Garrison, which is what the media was doing left and right. They were going after Gar that Garrison, the district attorney, Jolly Green Giant. I think he was six foot eight, six foot seven, mm. six foot eight, one of the biggest DAs in the history of America. And um, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So Jim told me, watch out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of them told me, and a complete heterosexual, from what I understand. Um, okay. The, <laughs> the, he goes down and he meets Garrison, 
and he believes in the case. Garrison shows him what he's uncovered, tells ABC News he won't be back and gets deputized by Garrison as a deputy district attorney for the state of Louisiana and the city of New Orleans and becomes one of the actual official investigators of the case, uh, which leads to the trial of Clay Shaw, the only American brought to trial in the murder of JFK. Yeah, and um, he was exonerated, but I, I got the... He was exonerated, however, there was much achieved in that trial. The trial, for the first time, he subpoenaed Time Life magazine to Henry Luce and wrestled control of the locked away Zapruda film and showed it in open court in the public for the first time since 1963 when it was filmed. It had been mm -hmm. locked in a vault by Time magazine, uh, Life magazine intentionally so the American people could never get to see it. There was a guy named Jim Groden who was the uh, projectioner, projectionist in the courtroom. He made a copy of that film and a couple of years later, in 1971, I believe, uh, 72, took it on to a late night show run by a man named Geraldo Rivera, oh, showed the film, the entire film, the, the Zapruder film, to all of the United States of America. And that came out of that trial by Groden stealing that film and bringing it on to Geraldo a couple of years later. When Dick Gregory was on the show, uh, Groden, Geraldo, and America was stunned to see the president's head getting blown off for the first time. That's, that's a shocking video. I mean, it was unbelievably shocking. And that came out of that Clay Shaw trial with the help of Mort Saul. Well, that's good. I mean, and once it's out, you can't really do anything. You know, they right. couldn't bring it back in. Right. And right. it's been a problem, I think, ever it's since. It's been a problem ever since. They never thought that would see the light of day. They never oh. thought the American people would ever see it. I mean, they fought the subpoena, but... He had a legal subpoena to get that film for the trial. And everybody's going, what is he going to show the Zapruder film? I mean, it has something to do with Clay Shaw. And indeed, it didn't. I mean, Clay Shaw wasn't a shooter. But Clay Shaw with David Ferry and others in New Orleans conspired to murder the president. And, um, you know, Clay Shaw was friends with Oswald. He got him an, a, an attorney soon after the assassination. Oswald was down there with David Ferry. David Ferry had Oswald's library card on him. I, I mean, it, you can go into it. We'll do that as a separate episode. No, for sure. Series, obviously. But the point of the matter is, here is a, a, a comic who is now involved in politics. And that's rare. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, that's why I think that that's why it harkens back to Will Rogers. Because Will yeah. Rogers had that kind of. Yeah, Mark Twain also. Yeah, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, I'll say Alex Jones. I think history eventually will will vindicate Alex Jones as being the Will mm. Rogers, Mark Twain of his time. And I, 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 it may be posthumously, but he's in that same world. And I, you don't have to be a stand-up comic to speak truth to power. I mean, Alex sure. Jones has done it through whatever means necessary. He's an American hero. Whether you agree with what he's coming up with or not is your problem. I mean, Mort Saul offended a ton of people you know, with what he was coming up with. But he didn't care. He was just going for the truth. He didn't care. It was, he was just going for the truth in these matters. He was outraged that they blew his friend's head off. I mean, that's what got him started. You know. Well, yeah, sure. And I, yeah, I mean, especially because their relationship, I mean, it goes back and forth. I could see where it probably tore him up pretty badly. It did. It really did. And, um, um, you know, he dedicated his life to it. Yeah, I mean, especially he, after being loyal opposition, quote unquote, he might have felt like, 
Well, well not only that, they kept telling him, you know, uh, he, he was banned from the Hollywood studio system, uh, that his agent left him. They told him to stop reading the, the Warren Commission, that it wasn't funny anymore, you know, and, and he wouldn't buckle. He just said, you know, the audiences like it. They keep showing up, you know, for wherever he found a, a venue, you know, which wasn't so easy. But he still was able to work the college circuit. The college See, circuit, I, I kept him alive, I think. But it's even more impressive because now... I mean, Alex Jones could put up a web server and get his people to follow. Right. Back then, you could really be frozen out. Oh, he you was. Know, but the, yeah, I mean, what I'm saying is the only thing he wasn't frozen out of, which today they are, is mm -hmm. the college comedy circuit. They found that to be an Achilles heel. And with this new woke censorship, they boxed out every comic in America from working comedy clubs because they knew yeah. that was a vulnerable spot in their censorship world. That's why Seinfeld, Chris Rock, all these guys can't wear comedy clubs anymore because they they won't accept them. They're too woke and they won't book them. Back then, that was the only place left for Mort Soul. And that's why he did it. Um, he was obviously the first college comic ever. And he may have been the last, you know, in terms of uh, speaking truth to power. You know, I think they wouldn't let Mort Soul anywhere near a campus in Northern California these days. Well, now, after this, um, obviously, he was starting to rebuild it or whatever, but um, he got married to a second wife. Right, right. This is China Lee, the actress, uh, What's New Pussycat. Uh, she, she played a sex kitten in, in light comedies and stuff like that. A couple of, yeah, this is her, I think, from What's 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 Up, Tiger Lily? What did I say? Yep. So, What's Up, Tiger Lily? What's Up, Tiger Lily? Not What's New Pussycat. <laughs> what's Up, Tiger <laughs> Lily? Here, uh, obviously, playing a sex kitten. And um, another significant, she was the first Asian American to uh, play what? Right. Which goes to the story of his relationship with Hugh Hefner. He um, was very close with Hugh Hefner, lived in the Playboy Mansion in Chicago. Uh, when he was in Chicago, he would live there and was part of that world um uh and that was his best friend I mean, he was on playboy after dark a lot and um i think he just wanted the bunnies to be honest with you because in his book he thoroughly trashes you hefner as being the shallow business guy you know um yeah you, you mentioned that he kind of trashed a lot of people in this book. Dude, I, you know, i'm reading the book i haven't read it in years i was rereading it this week and i'm just like whoa i mean he just goes after everybody everybody is is fair game for him and and they're still alive when they're, he's writing in the book i mean these are not dead people i think wow. the book was it's not that uh, you know i mean these are real people who are really alive and i'm going like no wonder he had so many freaking enemies well, I'm, I don't know if this might have been a factor. I could not find many of uh, Mort Jr. But well, Mort Jr. dies, gets involved with heroin, I believe, and dies at, uh, as a teen, 19 or so, very young age. There he is there, obviously, like 10 years old or something. But um, I guess he's half Jewish and half Chinese. I, that's, a, yeah. that's a real dream to go to a Chinese restaurant and be half Jewish and half Chinese. <laughs> I think there's, there's a joke there somewhere, but, you know. Well, my... my um... Well, my wife had a friend um, who was talking about it. Her, she is Jewish, and she was with a Korean, and so it was like her mother and her husband's mother. It was like the the, the most aggressive mothers on the planet oh, wow. in the yeah. same we, relationship. We, <laughs> we have a baseball manager out here with the Dodgers, uh, Dave Roberts. He's half black and half Japanese, and every December every December seventh, he attacks Pearl Bailey. 
which is <laughs> really strange. <laughs> My mother, when we, we went to a Chinese restaurant one night and there was only one booth left open. We didn't have a reservation. It was a place we went all the time, but we hadn't gone there in a long time. And there was a booth open and it had a brass uh, nameplate and it said the Berkowitzes. And my mother said to the waiter, we're the Berkowitzes. And I said, Ma, we're not the Berkowitzes. So we had to make believe we were the Berkowitzes. Please tell me this is before David Berkowitz. Way before David. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we had to be the Berkowitzes the entire night and make believe. And with three young boys who were just going, we're the Berkowitzes. We're yelling stuff out and just crazy. I mean, but anyway, we had to go to Chinese restaurants as part of the religion. Oh, that is too funny. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, this um, later on. You met him and wrote about him. I think this is 2003. Yeah, I, I did an extensive interview with him. I, I did find the audio recordings, and, and he told me something that I didn't Very interesting. This is for an, a new publication called City Beat, L.A. City Beat. Um, it was a cover story I did with him. But he told me he was doing a college gig, and I, I believe it was 1969. And he believes the CIA dosed him with LSD. He drove off the road, almost killed himself, started hallucinating when he left the college. It was in what? some sort of, yeah, oh yeah, no, 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 no. We, we went into detail in the interview. Uh, he, it was in some punch they gave him and he drank it and he, he's not a drug guy. So I said, how did you know it was LSD? <laughs> you had nothing to compare it to, Mort. And, and he said, well, I started hallucinating and drove my car in, off the road into a ravine at 55 miles an hour and almost killed himself. And he believed the CIA was trying to kill him. They had run him off the road. They had gone after him a couple of times. And uh, he wasn't a nut. I mean, he didn't do drugs. He wasn't high. I mean, you know, I mean, he was a, a Puritan. So his words have more gravitas than others in that area. You know what I mean? Because he sure. was a teetotaler and was not, an, you know, that kind of person. So when somebody gives you LSD, it's a huge thing if you're a straight, you know, kind of person like that. And he okay. felt that they were trying. Well, first of all, he believed they killed Kennedy, you know, his best friend. Right. So that's not right. bizarre that they would try to kill him. They killed dozens of other witnesses, uh, far less important than Mort Saul, you know. Right. Now, this is around the time of um, his friendship with Haig. I, I think Haig died in the early 80s or, or not too far from there. But mm -hmm. I know, um, you know, he talked about Haig a lot. And what I found interesting with you is how he really seemed to like individuals yeah. over um, politics. And he, he seemed to go back to the old school. Like, I don't know if you remember the days of, um, well, I hate to say during Reagan time, but Reagan and Tip O'Neill were friends. Right. And they got on right, pretty well. Right. And yeah. it used to be like, okay, you fight all day in Congress and then you go drink at night. Right. He became friends with Reagan and the family socially. Uh, he was his biggest political influence was Adlai Stevenson uh, yeah. at the beginning. And then he became friends with guys on both sides. You know, um, when Bush was not in power, he didn't like Bush. He didn't like George Herbert Walker Bush. That's for sure. He hated Rumsfeld. He hated uh, the Bush. No, he people. hated he hated W. He hated he, W. H W. He was cool with. Well, the well, the old man was in Dallas, though. That's the problem. He had seen mm. he had seen the the documentation that I have seen of 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 Herbert Walker Bush filing uh, documentation from Dallas on November twenty second with the C, with the CIA, and mm. later becomes the head of the CIA. So, I mean, he had no illusions as to who George Herbert Walker Bush was. 
this guy worked his way up uh, through the ranks from Dallas. I mean, you know, he paid he paid his dues and became president of the United States via being head of the CIA, Eric. So um, I think he looked at the kid as a doofus. I mean, Rumsfeld, he looked at as another maniac, you know, a warmonger. His big thing was war. And mm. the Vietnam War puts him back on the map. He is in the weeds and in the forest for years until the Vietnam War. And he makes a strong comeback in 1967 on TV and uh, in nightclubs. He starts to come back in 68, 69, 70, into the early 70s. He hmm. begins to work again because of the war. Okay. Anyway, I pulled a couple uh, of the jokes he was um, talking about. Or mm -hmm. Like Haig. He talks about Haig a lot. That's why I can right. bring it up. Well, let me just, I just want to give you one joke from that yeah. time period before you get into Haig. This is from a joke from 1969. <laughs> he said, I have a lot in common with Manson. A lot of network heads are putting X's on my forehead, too. <laughs> now, come on, Eric. That's pretty good at 42 years of age. 1969 oh, yeah. after the Manson killings. God, yeah. Um, and then he was quoting um, Haig. I'll get that one out of the way. But um, uh, what was it? He was talking about an interview because he was complaining about Al Franken and Bill Maher. Oh, didn't, didn't like either of them. Right. And... Uh, was saying that they're profane and not really that talented. You know, he just is not a fan. Right. But he's saying that Haig was funnier than both to, um, I think it's Terry Gross of Fresh Air. And he was saying that uh, Haig stated, I went to the Intercontinental Hotel in Moscow and every car that pulled up was a Mercedes 600 driven by a Russian baby boomer with a platinum blonde 20 years old on his arm and a Rolex. And they all went in and drank apple martinis. I might as well have been in Beverly Hills, except there were no communists. <laughs> he, he, he told his story about being at a dinner party and meeting, uh, sitting next to Jack Welch and Rupert Murdoch around that time. Mm -hmm. and Jack Welch says to him, I'm thinking of moving out to Cal Southern California. What's it like? And he says, it's really beautiful. It's fantastic. He says, but we have a gang problem in L.A. And he goes, what kind of problem? He says, well, we've got about 5,900 young men who are members of the Crips and the Bloods. And 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 so now what's his name leans in Rupert Murdoch and says, really, there's that many of them. And he says, yeah. And he says, well, what are they doing about it? He goes, I don't know. He says, it's a big problem. So, you know, weeks go by and his wife said, you ever hear from those two guys again? And he says, no. So he calls him up. He calls up Jack Welch. And he said, did you ever move out here? And he says, well, I talked to Rupert Murdoch and, you know, I bought the Bloods. Murdoch bought the Crips. So we sent out a lot of accountants and started laying them off left and right. So now we've reduced the number quite a bit. We'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, okay. Now, later in life, he kept performing, right? I mean. Right. No, he performed until he died. Yeah. I mean, I mean he never stopped performing. Um, so then this is taking us to pretty much recent times i mean this is well you had the 2007 um wadsworth thing that i covered for um the, the wadsworth the 80th birthday oh yeah Remember yeah I talked about that 80th birthday i think that was 2007 was the last time i saw him um, yeah that sounds right right it was, i was in the second row he was in the first row but i mean you know it was every comic in town you know just coming out to to celebrate him and then you know you know, Richard Lewis was there. Carlin was there. Jay Leno was there. 
um, Norm was there. Um, it, it just went on and on and on. I mean, the, but the best was Albert Brooks, who came out <laughs> at the beginning. Albert Brooks came out and he's all bent out of shape. And he said, I'm really sorry. I was, you have to get another PR agency the next time you do any of these things. I thought this was the wake uh, of Mortsall that he had died. And I'm really embarrassed that to learn that he is alive and here today. And he's, I've written this obituary from Mort, I'm really embarrassed. And he reads the obituary and it's his biography, you know, which is really <laughs> fun. But he milked it for so long, Albert Brooks. Mort Saul was sitting in the first row just crying. And I, you know, it was just marvelous, absolutely marvelous. A great, great night. But as I said, Richard Lewis stole the night. Oh, perfect. It really was. <laughs> well, oh, Drew Carey is... and Leno were there too. And they really did not seem to fit in. I remember that Drew Carey and Jay Leno were just like from that other school of comedy of just telling jokes, you know, with Wyatt oh, the Borscht Belt. Borscht Belt. And everybody's like, oh, this isn't working. You know, How'd you they, get on with Dangerfield? Oh, I don't even think he knew Dangerfield. I, I don't even know. Well, Bill Maher was there too. And Bill mm. Maher did very well that night. Maher was there, you know, quite reverent. Reverend to Al, uh, to to uh, uh, Mort because he gave him his career. I mean, that's where he you know got it from. I mean, he gets fired from ABC himself. You know, for oh yeah, yeah, correct. You know, and Carlin was really on that night. George Carlin was really on. He he had mm. a special night. You know. Anyway, Carlin's was, a bridge though because Carlin was tight with Linny too, right? So it was kind of a almost like between the two sides you mentioned there were sort of like Linny's comics and mort's comics oh, yeah yeah it's two schools i just want to give you this one line from mort that night he said my grandfather came from lithuania but lou Dr lou dobbs tried to stop him <laughs> <laughs> i mean what a great line Good wow man. that was pretty funny he says you know he was talking about mitt romney and he says you know why mormons have sex standing up so people will think they're dancing <laughs> wow anyway yeah, I mean, yeah, Carlin got arrested with uh, Lenny Bruce just to meet him yeah. in, the, in the paddy wagon. Um, I don't know. I think it might have been uh, Gate of the Horn in Chicago. I don't, I'd have to look that up. But there was a club called Gate of the Horn, which was in back of Mr. Kelly's. And when uh, Mort was performing at Mr. Kelly's. I thought it was I in Minnesota. but it might have been Minnesota. I don't know why you'd be in Minnesota. But um, the big clubs were in the big cities unless they were playing like. Uh, Twin Cities. I don't know where they'd be, but Lenny used to talk about a bit that he did called Lima, Ohio, where the club's on the side of the road and in between shows, there's nothing you can do. So he went outside and looked at the stars. He said it was just on the side of a road, you know, some dive. But yeah, Carlin got arrested when Lenny got busted. And um, he he said that at, when he was on the balls of his ass, he was hitchhiking on Sunset Boulevard, uh, Lenny Bruce, to his house where he lived on Laurel Canyon Boulevard over here. And uh, Mort Saul refused to pick him up. <laughs> hitchhiking, which is kind of weird. That's a weird story. And Mort said, Mort said he was exaggerating. I don't know what that meant, but, you know. Hmm. Well, perfect. This has been an amazing story. Uh, to close out, I put together you know oh he also dated more... gloria steinem i just want to add in one thing and he felt gloria steinem was a honey trap that she was later out at a cia oh yeah and he, he believed it. uh that steinem looking back uh might have been a honey trap which will be a future episode of honey traps 
Yes, Corrupt. multiple episodes. That one's going to be serious. Traps. There's a lot of them. Yeah, famous honey traps in American history. Great untold honey traps. That might Perfect. be a good episode. All right. Well, Mark, awesome. Thank you. And until next time. Alexander Haig was at the party, one-time presidential candidate, and uh, also uh, he was also the uh, Secretary of State, you recall, to uh, Reagan. And uh, he told me that he thought the collapse of the Soviet Union was another trick by the communists. <laughs> Very elaborate, I thought. And, uh, and he talked about communism and all. And then he uh, we had dinner, and then he offered me a cigar, and uh, it was a Havana. And uh, I said, gee, General Haig, how do you explain smoking Castro's cigars. And he said, I don't think of it that way. I prefer to think of it as burning his crops to the ground. <laughs> the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a right-wing social democrat. Right-wing social democrat. That's where they are. The right wing of the middle. You know, they don't believe in, in extremism. Feminism, feminism is the first time in American history where you were asked to join a group so you could become an individual. It's a new concept. Okay. Jimmy Stewart is attacking the press in 1939. Outside of Jack Parr, I never knew anyone who had the courage uh, to take them on. Eugene McCarthy once said that the press in Washington should be limited to a four-year term. And yeah, he, might, he might have been onto something there. You, you, know, you know the power of the press here. You know, I can give you an idea. Uh, I've been divorced. And you know, in, in Los Angeles, I was very happily married. I really loved my wife. And then the Daily Variety came out, the show business Bible, and a columnist named Army Archer said, Mort Saul and his wife have had it. It's over. And I called my press agent. I said, what am I going to do here? This isn't true. My press agent said, I think about that because this guy's a very powerful journalist. <laughs> so so uh, I said, but I love her. He said, well, just tape her off. See less of her and it'll be easier. Okay. Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania, was the junior lawyer on the Warren Commission, yes, sitting four seats from Ted Kennedy, who invented the single bullet theory, which maintained, and we don't challenge it, because the official finding of the government, that bullet 399 had entered John Kennedy's back, exited through his chest, paused for a second and a half, <laughs> then seeing Governor Connolly, Goes on, right, and goes through his arm and makes a right turn and goes, right, and emerges pristine and unscathed on the stretcher at Parkland uh, Hospital. Sally Field, who was campaigning for Dukakis, once said to me, we'd like to get a financial contribution from you, Mort. You'd like Dukakis. He's a lot like Jack Kennedy. And I said in utter frustration at this party, and a waiter was in front of me, I said, is there anybody in the Democratic Party that isn't like Jack Kennedy? And the waiter said, yeah, Ted Kennedy. So, right? But uh, yeah. I take that as a, a personal challenge, but I must say that uh, it, two things have changed in, in the approach to the work. Exaggeration is no longer available to me as a weapon because everything is all too credible. And uh, the old comedian's trick, of course, was exaggeration to the logical extension to the absurd. Well, the absurd, of course, is, is uh, now the prime form. And the second thing is... Uh, my biggest laughs are generally direct quotations rather than any uh, personal inventions.